I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. So I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. But the Negro in this country, the future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they maligned so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need him. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, north and south, because it's one country, and for a Negro, there is no difference in the north and the south. There's just you know, a difference in the way they, in a way they castrate you. But, that's, but the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not a nigger here, and you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. This week on Crossing the Lane Lines. Aside from the fact that she was visibly upset, Simone Manuel was visibly upset, the fact that they kept coming back to that question even after she had answered it time and time again felt really uncomfortable to watch. And I don't think that it would have been asked in the same way had she been a different athlete. On July 17th, at a press conference after she failed to make the 100-meter finals at the Olympic trials, Simone Manuel was grilled by journalists concerning her medical diagnosis of overtraining syndrome. Many framed their questions as if to doubt whether the diagnosis really exists. All elite athletes have to answer questions about their performance. It's part of their job. But when do these questions go too far and are less about performance and more about race and gender. We'll speak to scholar, author, and sports enthusiast, Dr. Letitia Brown, about the media, race, black female athlete bodies, and the need to hold sports journalists accountable. All that more coming up. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. In the five years since Rio, Simone Manuel has established herself as the most dominant freestyle sprinter in women's swimming, winning back-to-back world titles in the 100-meter free in 2017 and 2019. In 2019, she became the first American woman to sweep the 50 free and 100 free world titles. She was a member of two world record-breaking relay teams and she broke the record for most medals earned by a female swimmer at a single Worlds with seven trips to the podium. To date, there is only one woman who has won more career swimming world titles than Manuel, and that's her Stanford teammate and training partner, Katie Ledecky. On June 17th, at the U.S. Olympic swimming trials, 
Manuel missed the finals of the women's 100-meter free by 0.02 seconds. The event in which she is the defending Olympic gold medalist, two-time reigning world champion, and American record holder. She then sat down in front of a group of reporters and spoke for about 24 minutes. During this interview, Manuel revealed that after experiencing symptoms that included increased heart rate, insomnia, depression, anxiety, and soreness, she was diagnosed with overtraining syndrome in March. Throughout the interview, reporter after reporter kept coming back to the question of this diagnosis, trying to find out more about it, and some seemed to question whether there was anything really wrong physically with Manuel. It's not uncommon for world-class athletes to be held to a higher standard when they compete. After all, this is their job. But when does the media go too far when they ask questions of these supposed supermen and superwomen? And how does race and gender factor into the equation when these questions are being asked? Joining us to talk more about the issue of race and gender in the sports world is Dr. Letitia Brown an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Virginia Tech. Using a black feminist lens, Dr. Brown's research focuses on issues of social inequality broadly, including issues of race and racism through the lens of sports, social relationships, and food, as well as black girlhoods. Dr. Letitia Brown, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Dr. Brown. You know, as I watched Simone's interview after she lost her bid to have a shot at defending her 100-meter freestyle title in Tokyo, I kept noticing reporters returning to the issue of her health. For example, one reporter asked, quote, if she had ever heard of her diagnosis, was it common for swimmers to get it, close quote. I mean, it felt like this reporter was questioning whether or not this was a legitimate health concern. Am I off on this assumption? Um, I wouldn't say so. I watched the interview as well, and it was heartbreaking. I mean, aside from the fact that she was visibly upset, Simone Manuel was visibly upset, the fact that they kept coming back to that question even after she had answered it time and time again felt really uncomfortable to watch. And I don't think that it would have been asked in the same way had she been a different athlete. Swimming, as I'm sure you're aware, is viewed as a white sport. Since stunning everyone back in Rio with her 100-meter freestyle gold medal performance, Simone has been held up as a role model for future African-American swimmers, basically Jackie Robinson 2.0. Now, throughout that time, she has constantly had to answer the question of the lack of diversity in the sport. She doesn't mind answering, but wonders why white swimmers aren't asked the same. Dr. Brown, over the course of many years, when black folk have broken down barriers in predominantly white arenas, they have had to deal with the race question. First off, why should black athletes, in this instance swimmers like Simone, be asked this question? And secondly, why doesn't the media go directly to the source of the problem and challenge them on the issue of race and equity for, example, say USA Swimming? Well, I am going to preface my answer by saying that I am a cisgender black woman who can swim, but is not nor has ever been a swimmer. And, you know, I think that has a lot to do with the history of swimming in the U.S. and also just, you know, my 
individual fear of drowning, but being a one or a one of two perhaps in any type of institution as a black person and especially a black woman, that is the question that we get asked. Like as a black woman in academia, as a assistant professor who looks relatively young and is relatively young, it's a question I'm consistently asked, also prefaced by you don't look like a professor, to which I'm sure Simone Manuel has heard, you don't look like a swimmer. Um, unfortunately, we have a history in the U.S. of asking those who are oppressed why they're oppressed rather than going to the source of the oppression to figure out exactly the root cause of that oppression. So we discuss issues of why there is a lack of representation of Black people in government, for instance, rather than asking why there have been legacies that have blocked Black people from being able to run for government, because that's just the American way, unfortunately. One thing that I find very concerning is the animalization of Black bodies, in particular Black women. For example, I've heard Simone being referred to as a beast, yet Katie Ledecky, her training partner, is often mentioned as a warrior. Dr. Brown, how important is it to call out the media on its use of this type of imagery concerning black bodies? I think it's incredibly important, and it's something that I have done consistently in my work since I was a graduate student. Um, if we go back to the work of scholars such as Frantz Fanon, who talked about how the black body has become the most eroticized and how we think and how the white psyche comes to think of black bodies as being athletic or animalistic or hypersexual and savage, and that these are the continued colonial tropes that are still associated with blackness today. And it is really unfortunate. Now, people will say things like calling a person a beast or, for instance, you know, a goat for, you know, greatest of all time is a benign thing to do when it really has nothing to do with race. But when you think about the legacy of Black people in this country and worldwide, you cannot deny the ways in which the two are related. It's not the same thing. And we have to stop pretending as though race doesn't matter. It would be lovely if we lived in a truly post-racial society, but we don't. And saying that we do and pretending that race and color don't matter is not going to make the problem go away. And so I think it's really important that we kind of move beyond these narratives that are so ingrained in our thought processes when we think about sports and athletics, even in general. Like um, earlier in the year, or was it last year, with COVID, everything is so confusing. But for instance, in football, the imagery of the plantation is still incredibly strong, such that a football coach at Creighton University told his team that they need to stay on the plantation, but everyone will tell you that football isn't a racist sport. There's no racism in sports, and yet that's still the same verbiage that we're using. So we really have to be mindful and think critically about who we're talking about and why we're talking about them in that way. During the French Open, Naomi Osaka announced that she wouldn't be attending press conferences. She cited issues of mental health that she was dealing with since winning the U.S. Open. 
the governing body of the French Open demanded that she attend or face fines and possibly forfeiture. Rather than deal with this, Osaka decided to withdraw from the tournament. The backlash that followed in the media was swift, some saying that other players had personal issues but showed up to address the media. It seems that as long as an athlete's life, especially a black athlete and double for a black woman athlete, is reduced to performing for the crowd like a unicycling bear at the circus, their mental health will cease to be a priority or considered essential. Dr. Brown, I'm wondering if you can give us your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I was huh, I was very, very happy for Naomi for taking control of her life and stepping away because protecting her mental health is her job. It's not her job to, as you say, perform for the masses. Like, yes, she is an athlete, and yes, she does have, you know, certain things that she has to accomplish, but at the expense of protecting her mental health, I disagree. She doesn't have to. And she doesn't necessarily owe us an explanation for that. Um, thinking about the recent incident with um, Shakari Richardson, the sprinter who found out about the death of her biological mother from a reporter that she had never met, that is something that should never happen. The press has been showing us time and time again that they don't understand how to interact with black athletes because they don't see them as human, because they still continue to not see black people as human. And it is disturbing. And people will say, oh, you're reading too much into it. Oh, it's not like that anymore. Oh, we've come so far. Barack Obama was president. And then I say, yeah. And what happened after his two years in office? Like, do we want to talk about that? Because we spend more time talking about how Gwen Berry did not, you know, salute the flag than we do about the, you know, insurrection that took place on the Capitol on January 6th. And it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, Dr. Harry Edwards, who is a sociologist activist, said once that, you know, like a piece of equipment, the black athlete is used. And I think one of the areas in which we see that happening time and time again is within the media and the expectations that the media has of black athletes to, regardless of what's happening in their lives, to perform for them in a way that serves them the best that they see fit, which is unfortunate. I'm wondering if we can go back to Simone for a minute. When we look at the totality of this past year, all of us worldwide have had to deal with a terrifying global pandemic. In this country, it's claimed over 600,000 lives alone. For Simone, she had to deal with isolation, finding places to train since all the pools were closed, the lynching of George Floyd in May of 2020, the BLM protest, trying to make her sports governing body, USA Swimming, become more diverse, inclusive, and equitable all while training to defend her 100-meter freestyle gold in Tokyo. Now, that was a tremendous burden for anyone to bear, but especially this amazing young black woman. Dr. Brown, throughout most of what I've read after she didn't qualify for the 100 meters, reporters cited her overtraining syndrome, but rarely referenced the burdens that she had to carry that I just cited above. Do you think that these issues should have been factored into the analysis when reporters talk about why Simone 
didn't qualify for the 100 meters in Tokyo and not solely concentrating on her medical diagnosis? Of course I do, but I don't think they recognize that, which is why I appreciate Simone Manuel bringing it up herself. When she explicitly stated that the past year had been incredibly hard for Black Americans, and that was something that she couldn't ignore. Like, we can't ignore the disproportionate ways in which Black people were dying of COVID in this country, and that the continued lynchings are related to kind of like this legacy of when Black people weren't able to use pools, and when we were being hung by trees rather than being, you know, having our necks leaned upon until we ran out of breath. The times have changed, yes. The imagery has changed, yes. But a lot of the things remain the same. And I applaud Simone Manuel for bringing that to the press's attention because if she hadn't, I don't think they would have. I couldn't see from the vantage point that I had, but I have no doubt in my mind that the majority of the people in that press room were white. And the fact that... On a daily basis, white people do not have to navigate their whiteness as a means of protection and survival gives them this blindness to why they don't understand why black people and other people of color, you know, have to do these things. And so it probably never occurred to anyone in that room to even ask how these situations impacted her. There was a question about COVID, but there wasn't a question about COVID as it was directly affecting Black people, but just as it was affecting individuals in terms of, you know, personal senses of isolation. Like COVID was a very different experience for Black and brown people than it was for white people in America. It was a very different experience for Asian Americans than it was for Black and brown people and white people in America. And if we don't talk about the reasons why these experiences were so different, when something like this happens again, things are only going to repeat themselves. And we're going to have more attacks on Asian Americans in the streets. We're going to have more deaths of black, unarmed black men, women, and femmes. And we're going to have more black people dying in prison because they're more likely to be incarcerated anyway. And so, There's just so much that the media needs to consider when speaking to black athletes that they just don't even, that's not even a blip on their radar 99% of the time. And that is something that needs to change. There is no shortage of sexist, homophobic, racist, and at times fascist sports media that can be heard on the radio, read in print, or social media. I'm wondering if you could alert our listeners to sports media that approaches sports in a more positive and socially conscious way. Oh, 100%. Um, Podcasts, burn it all down. Um, Podcasts, again, the black athlete, I love them. Um... Uh, sports on the internet, they do a lot of articles, I would say, first in pen. Um, you know, Dave Zirin, who is a sports journalist, Jessica Luther, um, Shereen Ahmed, like there are so many amazing people and organizations that you can learn about and follow on Twitter and on 
other platforms to get information from a standpoint that doesn't center whiteness because, or maleness for that matter. Because even in sports, there are problems. Like Dr. Harry Edwards' book, The Revolt of the Black Athlete, had a 50th um, anniversary edition in 2018 in which he was reflecting upon the 1968 Olympics. And he noted explicitly the ways that black women were left out of the conversation and how that continues today. And so it's really important that we look at the ways that these intersections exist because there is no one single experience and it's time that the world reflect that. I've been asking this question of the past several guests as the Tokyo games approach. And I want to get your opinion. The IOC has said that they will allow no protests at these games. They will not tolerate black power salutes, BLM t-shirts, kneeling on the podium and other forms of nonviolent action. However, they will allow someone to walk around in an innocuous t-shirt that says something like love or peace. Dr. Brown, first of all, what is your opinion on Rule 50 that the IOC has instituted in these games? And secondly, should athletes disregard it and take a stand? Hmm. I have a lot of issues when it comes to the IOC for a number of reasons. They don't have the very best track record when it comes to treating people who are not men and who are not white. So I will just, you know, lay that out as my foundation. Um, I think it's really, you know, just exhausting that we keep trying to make sports into an apolitical space, especially at a competition such as the Olympics, which is this moment in which we're trying to ingrain nationalism and it's just like how are we doing that and still being apolitical simultaneously like it's not possible and so by asking athletes to essentially silence the majority of who they are as people first is unconscionable and I mean you know I think that protest is effective when there is, you know, a critical mass. And even though individual protest is important, I do think that for actual change to exist, a critical mass has to occur. And the truth of the matter is, in countries such as the U.S., like, the sport industrial complex survives on the backs of black labor and you know if that labor were to go away there would be change um what that would look like at the olympics i i don't know um it's it's all happening so soon i'm not sure i don't know what i would do as an athlete i like to think i would i know what i would do but you can't know what you'll do until you're in that moment And there are so many things that are necessary to speak about at this time that it could get disjointed and lost in the shuffle if it wasn't done in a way that was not necessarily centralized, but just kind of at least, you know, threaded together. 
like the fact that so many black women have recently been banned from running because of the way that their natural bodies occur is a problem. And the fact that we're not talking about it as a black woman's issue is a problem. The fact that they're, um, they're out there banning swim caps that are made essentially to, you know, um, support black hair is a problem. Like, we want there to be more diversity in swimming, but we're not going to allow products that would make that possible. I don't understand. Like, that seems like a paradox to me. And so I think that, you know, there is a place for protest and revolution at the Olympic Games. We've seen it throughout history. Like, it's happened before. And I think if not this this time around, it will happen again. And what that will look like, I have no idea, but I hope I'm around to see it because I bet it could be incredible. But uh, I don't know. That's That's really, yeah, that's really all I can say is I don't know. I'm glad you brought up the issue of swim caps because that actually leads into my next question. FINA, the Federation for International Competitions and Water Sports, has recently come under fire for banning swim caps that were designed for swimmers for diverse hair types for the Olympics, as well as other international swim competitions. Now, the reasoning for this decision was the following. I'm going to quote them directly here. Quote, athletes competing at the international events never used neither require to use caps of such size and configuration. Then they go on to say, following the natural form of the head, close quote. Dr. Brown, what are your thoughts on this ban? Yeah, um, the natural form of whose head? Of whose heads are we measuring? Are we going back to phrenology? Is that what's happening right now? Are we considering, you know, that there might be a reason for that if we look at the legacy of international swimming? You know, maybe there's a reason that there hasn't been a need for swim caps of that size before because swimmers who would need that haven't been able to reach that level before. And the fact that they're not willing to think about it critically and admit that they've made a mistake and the fact that their ruling was essentially a racist one, I find it to be problematic. I hope that they get called out more and more, that they take a real hard look at themselves and not only walk it back, but apologize profusely and admit that they need to get some actual understanding about the reality of the explicit racism behind their comments. Like, whose head? Like, do they not understand that scientific racism was based on skull measurements? Like, is that what we're doing again? Like, what century are we in? But, of course, you know, everything is post-racial now. Like, what? What is happening? So I just, I mean, I'm working on a piece right now with First in Pen that talks about black hair. And it's also a subject that I'm bringing up in my book that I'm currently working on as well. And so I hope that more and more as we begin talking about this loudly, because black women have been talking about black hair for years, and yet it seems as though nobody hears us until they hear us. So hopefully this time we will be heard. Finally, the games begin on July 23rd. Will you be watching in spite of the fact that many have said that they should not be taking place? 
due to Japan having a less than 5% vaccination rate. I am so conflicted because there are so many athletes that I want to watch, but at the same time, I am worried about number one, the health of the athletes. Number two, the fact that so many have been disqualified for such, you know, blatantly racist reasons and sexist reasons. And it just feels like this whole game has become incredibly problematic, especially in the past few weeks. And I just am overwhelmed. I am, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the next few days. Um, But if by some chance the Olympic Games didn't happen, I'm not going to say that I would be devastated. I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like for the athletes themselves. But just as a spectator and as a scholar, I don't think I would be devastated. But if they occur, I don't know. I will have to really check my soul on this one because, you know, I stopped watching the NFL several years ago and have never gone back. This might be a similar situation in which I never watch the Olympic Games again until they get their act together. But I hope it doesn't come to that because athletics are a part of my life. I love sports. And the reason I'm so critical of sports and the sports media in particular is because I love sports so much. Like, you have to critique the things that you love or they will never change for the better. Our guest today has been Dr. Letitia Brown, an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Virginia Tech. Using a black feminist lens, Dr. Brown's research focuses on issues of social inequality broadly including issues of race and racism through the lens of sports, social relationships and food, as well as black girlhoods. Dr. Brown's work can be found in publications such as the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, the Ethnic Studies Review, the South African Review of Sociology, the Palgrave Handbook of Feminism and Sport, Leisure and Physical Education, as well as the online publication First in Pen. Dr. Brown teaches courses such as Race and Ethnicity, Sociology of Inequality, Race and Racism, and Plantation Politics, the Black Sport Experience. Dr. Letitia Brown, we wish you and your family health and safety during these challenging times in our country. And thank you again for joining us today on Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you so much for having me. On June 25, 2021, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison for the lynching of George Floyd. Judge Peter Cahill of Hennepin County District Court handed down the sentence, which fell short of prosecutors' request of 30 years in prison. Cahill said his sentence surpassed the state's sentencing guidelines of 12 and a half years because Chauvin has abused his position of trust and authority and displayed a particular cruelty toward Floyd. A particular cruelty. With all due respect to you, Judge Cahill, I disagree with that statement that Chauvin displayed a particular cruelty. Chauvin 
was acting the way that many in the black community feel police act towards us every day. There will be those that say that justice has been served in this case. There will be those that say that justice is blind in this country because that's the way our criminal system is supposed to work. And a jury found Chauvin guilty on all counts. So, okay, he was found guilty on all counts. And he's facing many years of incarceration. But please don't tell us that now we should just go about our business as if everything is okay. Because it's not. You see, tomorrow, I'll get up to go to work and hope and pray that I don't get pulled over by the police. I'll cross my fingers that I can remember the talk that my mother taught me when I was a little boy. And I'll be relieved that if I do have an encounter with law enforcement, I'll be able to leave on my own instead of in an ambulance or a coroner's wagon. I know that many of my white friends may be surprised at my cynicism with respect to the sentencing. But look at it from my point of view. If there wasn't a brave young black girl who continually kept filming as Chauvin pressed his knee on George Floyd's neck, if there weren't non-stop protests, not only in this country, but around the world demanding justice for Floyd and the need to address systemic racism, if the Floyd family and their attorneys hadn't doggedly pursued justice, would we even be having this conversation? Philando Castile's death was live streamed on Facebook. There was video of Tamir Rice getting shot immediately after officers arrived on the scene, and yet none of those officers faced criminal prosecution. One guilty verdict and a 22 and a half year sentence doesn't make up for the thousands of black and brown bodies that will never see justice. But if we really begin to have a racial reckoning in this country, it could be a start. Amen. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines, signing off.